Today, we'll be exploring God's calling to Moses at the burning bush, which can be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. In the Church Bible, you can find this passage on page 59, and in the large print version, it's on page 89. Before we look at that passage, let me start by setting the context. And to do this, we need to travel back 400 years to Genesis 47. There we go. Jacob and his household have left the land of Canaan and traveled into Egypt in search of food as a great famine had swept the land. If we've read the story or seen the musical, we know that Jacob's son, Joseph, was already living in the land of Egypt, working as Pharaoh's right-hand man. Joseph was held in extremely high esteem, and because of this, Pharaoh invited Joseph's family to stay and settle in the land of Egypt. As we get to chapter 1 of Exodus, we can see that the Israelites have not return to the land of Canaan. During their 400 years' stay, they've greatly increased in number. But they no longer experience the welcome that they originally received when they first moved all those years ago to Egypt. And over time, they become subjugated into slavery by the Egyptians. And if you read the opening chapter of Exodus you can see that they're suffering greatly under their Egyptian slave masters. God has heard the cry of his people. He can see their suffering. And because of this, he's moved into action. In chapter 2, we begin to read about the early years of a man named Moses. At the time of his birth, Moses issued... At the time of his birth, Pharaoh issued a decree stating that all Hebrew baby boys were to be thrown in the Nile to be killed. This was his way of managing the rapid population increase of the Israelites. As a Hebrew baby born from the tribe of Levi, Moses was in danger. But thanks to the actions of his mother and sister, Miriam, Moses survived and was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter in a basket on the Nile. Despite being born a Hebrew by birth, Moses was raised as an Egyptian in a palace and separate from his countrymen. By the time Moses had grown up, we read about an incident where Moses murders an Egyptian slave master who was beating one of his fellow Israelites. Pharaoh finds out what's gone on and and wants Moses killed. So Moses goes on the run and flees Egypt to live in the land of Midian as a wanted man. In Midian, Moses meets a woman named Zipporah, and they get married. And Moses gets a job working for his father-in-law, Jethro, as a shepherd. Which brings us to today's passage that we're exploring. Now, theologians refer to this passage as call narrative. Call narratives simply focus on a dialogue between God the one who's doing the calling, and the one being called, 
Throughout the Bible, there are a number of call narratives. Um, we see it in the calling of Gideon in Judges, for Samuel in the book of Samuel, Jonah, Jeremiah, the prophet. These are just some of those examples. So Moses was looking after his father and all his sheep. In verse 1, we read that he led them to the other side of the wilderness, arriving at a place called Horeb. Now, another name for Horeb, which might be more familiar to us, is Sinai, a place which will become synonymous to Moses and the Israelites in the coming months and years. Verses 2 and 3 tell us that Moses' attention is captivated by a burning bush. Despite being on fire, the bush, strangely, wasn't being burned up, which piques Moses' interest. So he approaches the bush for closer inspection. As he gets closer, a voice calls his name, Moses, Moses. In Semitic culture, repeating somebody's name in this way was a way of expressing endearment and affection. God wanted Moses to know that the voice he's hearing is a friendly voice. Similar examples of this can be found in Genesis 22, verse 11, when God calls Abraham. Or in Genesis 46, 2, when God calls Jacob. And in 1 Samuel, when God calls Samuel as a young boy. Despite God's affectionate greeting, Moses is quickly told to remove his sandals as the place he is standing is holy ground. And the one with whom he's meeting is a holy God. In verse 6, God introduces himself to Moses. Now, it's unclear what prior knowledge Moses had of God before this meeting. As we know, the first part of Moses' life, he was raised as an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household. And from that time onwards, he lived in Midian. My guess is that Moses wasn't educated in a lot of Israelite culture which may, might explain why God felt the need to introduce himself at the outset. However, Moses seems to understand a little bit of his Israelite heritage, because when God refers to being the God of his ancestors, we read that he hides his face in fear. After introducing himself, God discloses his rescue plan to Moses. Let's read verses 7 to 9. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. As God reveals his plan to rescue the Israelites, I can imagine Moses is getting excited. He must be thinking, thank you, God. After years of oppression and suffering, you're finally coming to come to Egypt to rescue my relatives and set them free from slavery. 
But the problem for Moses is that God doesn't stop at verse 9. He has another important detail to throw in. Let's read verse 10. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, Israelites, out of Egypt. Now you can picture Moses at this point, can't you? It's like the, the needle on the record slipped off and suddenly all the, the joy is dissipated. Moses' heart sinks at this point as he desperately tries to process what he's just heard. So how does Moses respond to this bombshell that's literally landed at his feet? I guess probably the same way that most of us in this room would likely respond. Verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? that I should go. Moses' first reaction is to doubt himself. And as we look at his credentials, it's easy to see why. Moses is an 80-year-old man at the time this takes place. I don't know about you, it's hardly the time for a new career. He has no standing amongst the Israelite community. He's living as a fugitive in a foreign land and working as a simple shepherd, looking after sheep that are not even his own. Now, we could argue that Moses does have influence within the Egyptian community, given his years growing up in Pharaoh's palace. But surely all that credit dissipated when Moses murdered the Egyptian slave driver in the previous chapter. So it's easy to see why Moses has doubts. But how does God respond to these doubts? Well, let's read the first part of verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. It's interesting, isn't it, that God doesn't rebuke Moses for having doubts or questions. Nor does he go the other way and spend time massaging Moses' ego by telling him, oh, you've got this, Moses, you're fine, I'm with you. Rather, God responds, first and foremost, by reassuring Moses that he will be with him. Moses has not been asked to go to Egypt alone. Rather, God reminds him that it's a team effort. In the second part of verse 12, God reassures Moses by promising to give him a sign to the, to the Israelites that they will worship God on this mountain, the mountain where he is actually receiving this word. The only problem with the sign that God promises is that it can only happen after Moses goes. As an aside, the sign that God does promise here in verse 12 comes into fruition later in the book of chap- in, in Exodus chapter 19. So how does God respond to this, this, these assurances from God? How does Moses respond to these assurances from God? Well, it's clear Moses is not satisfied with the assurances. So he raises more concerns. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? 
then what shall I tell them? In his previous question to God, in verse 11, Moses shows that his doubts lie within himself. In verse 13, Moses' doubts shift from himself to how he will be perceived and received by the Israelites. Now, it's quite understandable for Moses to have such concerns. As we've already highlighted, Moses wasn't coming into this new role with an impressive CV. Moses' questions in verse 13 show that if he's ever going to go to the Israelite community, he will need to be able to articulate who actually sent him. Otherwise, he just looks like a loony, doesn't he? Moses, doesn't, Moses knows he doesn't have the credentials himself to win the Israelite community. So he needs to have the credentials of the one sending him. We could argue, are Moses' questions to God sincere? Or are they simply a device to try and stall God or even get him to change his mind? We don't know the motivation. But we can say that the questions and doubts that Moses brings lead to God highlighting his identity, revealing his identity, and not just that, but God revealing his rescue plan. Let's read verses 14 to 22. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you, sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you, and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards his people. So that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Not only has Moses, not only has God assured Moses that he will be with him, God has also disclosed in detail how he is going to rescue his people. Yet despite this, Moses is still not convinced. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he asks, What if they do not believe me? 
and say, believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord didn't appear to you. Moses' question shows that he's already forgotten that God has just said to him in verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. God can see that he's not getting through. So now it's his turn to ask Moses a question. Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? Moses replied, A staff. Now the reason Moses has a staff in his hand is because the staff is an essential tool for a shepherd. Now I did a bit of research and found out that a shepherd would use a staff for a number of purposes. It could be used to protect their sheep, you know, um, and protect themselves from predators, give them a whack. Um, They could use the staff to direct their sheep. You know, when you're trying to get them through, you just lead them and the sheep will follow the way. And depending on the staff, I couldn't find one with a crook on, I'm afraid, so you've got to imagine the crook. Um, they, They could use the staff to pull sheep out of like streams or, or they could also use the crook, the straight end, to count the sheep, make sure all their flock is still there. So that's why the Lord asked Moses what's in his hand. The Lord commands Moses to throw his staff to the ground. Now it's only when he lets go of it that it turns into a snake. In verses 3 to 9, God provides Moses with three signs as a means to reassure him and also convince the Israelites that he has been sent from God. And we've seen these signs in the video, haven't we? The snake, the leprosy. And you'd think that these miraculous signs that Moses witnesses would have convinced him. If anything's going to convince you, it's your staff turning into a snake, isn't it? Yet in verse 10, we're back to Moses doubting himself. This time, it's to do with his lack of oratory skills. Let's read. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. I think that's a fair enough argument. You know, if you've been asked to go and lead a nation out of slavery and convince Pharaoh... You know, you, you expect a, a level of good communication skills. I think Moses has got a good argument there. And despite, but despite this logical objection that Moses has, at its core, it's flawed. Because Moses is once again focusing solely on his own skills and limitations and what he himself can bring to the table. Previously, in chapter 3, verse 12, God assured Moses that he will be with him as he goes. But the way Moses is speaking suggests that God's assurances have fallen on deaf ears. God needs to give Moses a reality check, which verses 11 and 12 show he does. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, 
the Lord. Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Tough to argue against that one. And by all appearances, it seems to be checkmate to God. But in verse 13, we see Moses has one final attempt to avoid God's call on his life. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. So far, God has been gracious and patient, and he's sought to answer all of Moses' questions and concerns. When Moses realizes he can't argue his way out of going to Egypt, he's reduced to asking the Lord to send someone else. Verse 14 shows God's response. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. So far, God allows Moses to have his doubts, to ask his questions, and raise his objections. But when Moses chooses to disobey God, we see his anger burn against Moses. But notice, that anger is fleeting. And even in his anger, verses 14 to 16 show us that God graciously concedes to allow Moses' brother Aaron to go with him as a helper. So as we reflect on today's reading, what can we learn and apply for our lives today? Well, firstly... God uses the unlikely suspects to do his work. I don't know about you, but I love how the Bible is full of stories where God repeatedly uses the most unlikely suspects to do his work. He doesn't pick the A-team, does he, God? In the Old Testament, Rahab, the prostitute, David, the adulterer and murderer, Saul, persecutor of Christians, all used by God for extraordinary purposes. It's almost as if God selects what we would call the unqualified to re-emphasize all the while that it is him who is doing the work. I know that if I was to select the candidate to leave the Israelites out of slavery, it wouldn't have been Moses. Thank God it wasn't me doing the selecting. Thousands of years later, And God is still using unlikely suspects to do his work. People like you. People like me. But how often can we feel like Moses and doubt ourselves? We can feel inadequate, can't we? And unqualified to be of any use to God. And like Moses, we conclude, who am I? Today's passage should encourage us because if God can use someone like Moses, then surely he can use someone like us. Secondly, God goes with us. As God reassures Moses that he will go with him to Egypt, today we can go out in the same knowledge that God is with us as we go into the world. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you. I am with you always to the very end. Because of the work of Jesus, we are sent out with God's Holy Spirit living within us. As we reflect on this unbelievable truth, do we really live as if this is the case? Do we go to work with the assurance that the creator of all things not only goes with us, but lives within us? Do we shrink at life's difficult situations and circumstances? Or do we see life through the reality that we go in the Spirit's power? We've, looked, we've sung this morning, haven't we? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Do we do that? I don't know about you, but I, I forget this profound truth far too frequently to mention. Lord, forgive us when we take our eyes off you. Thirdly, this story shows us that God doesn't mind our doubts, reservations, or questions, but he does mind our disobedience. It's okay to have doubts and worries. God is patient, and he graciously listens to us in those doubts. He's happy to answer our questions and hear our questions and reservations. But notice how the calling on Moses still remains. It's only when Moses tries to get out of going to Egypt that God gets angry. God doesn't tolerate disobedience. And the good news is that if we repent, he's very quick to forgive. Now it's natural, isn't it? It's natural for us all to have doubts and questions and reservations. And it's part of our humanity. The Bible affirms that it's okay, that God is okay with this, which is why we see it so often throughout the Bible, especially in books like Job, Lamentations, and in the Psalms. I'm sure Moses would have happily spent the rest of his life living in Midian as a shepherd. But that's not what God called Moses to. How often can we feel inadequate and unqualified? And like Moses, we'd rather not put ourselves out there and instead enjoy the quiet life and hide our light under a bushel. I know I've felt that many times. Just want the quiet life. Lord, send someone else. However, this story shows us that God requires our obedience. The final point is that God... My final observation is that God uses our everyday, ordinary, to do the extraordinary. When Moses let go of his staff, God did extraordinary things. As many of you know, my wife Esther is a beauty therapist. And one thing I'm amazed with is how God uses her in her role. The, rela the relationships that she's built up with her clients, the conversations that she gets to have, and the opportunities that arrive for her to share her faith and the love of Jesus. In Esther's role, she has a great opportunity to build relationships. 
and in time, build trust with those who come for treatment. Like many of you here today, Esther sees her occupation as more than a job. It's the place God has called her. And uh, I'd like to share a story. Recently, she had a client who has become a friend. And this friend um, sadly suffered a terrible loss. And we, weren't, we were able to support her at the funeral. Whilst we were at that funeral, one of the family members came up to Esther and I, and she said that Esther had been a godsend. Now, you might be thinking that's not very extraordinary. Let me tell you why I think that's extraordinary. The reason I think this is extraordinary is that I believe God calls the church to go into the world to be the arms, feet, hands, and voice of Jesus. When the woman called Esther a godsend, she was 100% right. God sends us all out into the world. When we let God work through our everyday ordinary, extraordinary things can happen. We can influence society and reconcile a broken world. I'm sure there are many stories in this room where God has taken our ordinary everyday lives and done something extraordinary with them. I'd like to ask you a question. Just reflect on this in the days coming. What is in your hand today? How can you be a godsend in your place of work this week? In your retirement, your role as a neighbour, as a friend, a grandparent, an employer, or an employee? See, God is ready to take what is in your hands and do something extraordinary for his glory and for his kingdom. Amen. We're going to respond with a song. Now the tune most of you will be familiar with is a well-loved hymn, Abide With Me. But as you'll see quite quickly, the lyrics have been changed. And these lyrics emphasize um, the, words, the words focusing on the church's calling to go out into the world and change society. So as we sing this song, let's sing this song as a prayer, as a challenge, that as we go out into the world and in the days ahead, today and in the days ahead, that we will live in the knowledge that we have been sent by God to be God's sends to those who have yet to know him. Amen.